Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. Good morning. It's an honor and pleasure to be proclaiming the Word of God this morning on the second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope, or, or peace, actually. <laughs> Let's start with prayer. Holy Spirit, Come this morning and make our thoughts your thoughts. Fill our bodies with your presence and guide us in the way of truth and love. May we be expectantly awaiting the coming of Jesus, and may that anticipation overpower all other emotions. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. In the spring, at the beginning of this pandemic, I saw a comment online that Lent of 2020 was the lentiest Lent we had ever Lented. Um, And now, as the case numbers rise and we face a difficult winter, I expect that this Advent may be the Adventiest Advent we have ever Advented. Both Advent and Lent are times when we don't shy away from the darkness of our world. We allow ourselves to sit contemplatively amidst it and expectantly await the light of God to come. I know so many of us are weary to the bone after this year and just want Christmas to be tomorrow. We want freedom and liberation and joy to come now. We want all this suffering and sacrifice to be behind us. And God has so much compassion for our weariness. But we also know from scripture that trials strengthen and purify us, not only as individuals, but as communities, as nations, as his people. St. Paul tells us that as Christians, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. If St. Paul had not gone through such excruciating sufferings himself, torture, prison, shipwreck, and eventually execution, it would be easy to dismiss his words. But we know that he did, and that he grew deeper in love with Jesus throughout his life, growing into a brighter and brighter light for the gospel. So we must take him at his word. This is a hard-won truth for St. Paul. The psalm for this morning, Psalm 85, gives us a glorious picture of what happens when the people of God earnestly pray for salvation amidst a dark period. It's such a poignant psalm for this moment we are living in. It's a psalm about heaven coming to meet earth in a moment when earth seems devoid of all things heavenly. And this makes it an ideal Advent psalm because this is precisely what the Christ child brings to earth. You might be wondering why we are preaching from the Old Testament during Advent, the season that leads up to the birth of Jesus. Advent is the time in the church calendar when we delve into the prophetic speech about Jesus in the Old Testament, and we get this building sense of anticipation. It helps us embody how Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon, how they all felt when they first saw the baby Jesus. For them and for those Jews yearning for a Messiah, Jesus was the culmination of thousands of years of journeying with God and awaiting his full salvation. Understanding the story arc of the Old Testament is one of the most critical parts for really understanding how to read it. The Old Testament is an epic, evolving, continuing story. 
And it can be disorienting for us as it was written thousands of years ago by a culture far removed from our own. It's tempting to just stick to the more familiar ground of the New Testament. But without a rich understanding of the Old Testament, our understanding of what Jesus and his followers are doing in the New Testament is only partial. Jesus opens up the Old Testament scriptures to his disciple, to his disciples after he is resurrected and shows them how it all points to him and their minds are blown. Every step of the journey for the people of Israel is a revelation about who God is and who he made humans to be. There's a repetition in the Old Testament of the people residing close to God, and then, because of their own pride and poor choices, being sent into exile after exile after exile. From Eden to exile from the garden, from Canaan to exile into Egypt, from the promised land to exile into Babylon. Every exile is a reckoning, a time for Israel to really see itself clearly and to cry out for God's salvation. This morning's psalm takes place in a particular moment in this saga. We're going to go verse by verse through the psalm, so it would be really helpful if you had it in front of you in your Bible, um, but it'll be on the screen too. I'll give you a moment. Psalm 85 is written about the time when the people of Israel had been in captivity to Babylon for several generations. They had been marched away from their home in Zion to Babylon and had been forced to live in exile as prisoners in a foreign land. Scripture narrates that this happened because they had not been faithful to God when he gave them the promised land and had not obeyed his commandments about how they were to live with each other on the land he had gifted them. So he allowed Babylon to capture them and take them away. So the Israelites pray and pray to be allowed to return home for God to forgive their sins. And he answers their prayer. Through a series of remarkable events, they are able to return home to their ancestral land. But what happens when they arrive home? Famine. None of their harvests succeed. The land that had been abandoned won't yield a fruitful bounty like it used to before the exile. The promised land of fertility is infertile. Scholars say that it was during this anguish and famine and hunger, this national crisis, that Psalm 85 was written. The psalm begins, You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. The people are reminding God that he had answered their prayers and brought them back home. They remind him that he forgave their sins, that he gave them another chance. The psalm continues in verse four to seven. Restore us again, God our savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I love their honest annoyance here, almost arguing with God. This is common in the Old Testament. Israel means one who wrestles with God. Here they are saying, come on, Lord, you brought us all the way home only to starve us. Won't you ever forgive us? It's almost like a lover's spat, where Israel plays the part of the lover who has been unfaithful, pleading with their love to forgive them and allow full reconciliation. The Hebrew verb here is to turn back. Turn back to us, God. Look us in the eye. Forgive us. If you revive us, if you revive our bodies and our nations, they promise, we will praise you and rejoice in you. 
we know that you are the God of love, even when we are undeserving. Show us that love, God. They almost demand it. There's such an honest intimacy here between God and his people. It's understandable, though. They are hungry. They have nothing to lose. Their only hope is in their God and his love. Now, if you'll turn to verse 8, if you notice what happens in verse 8, the psalm switches perspective to God's response to his people, channeled through the voice of the psalmist. Many psalms are like this, conversations between God and his people back and forth. So verse 8 and 9 say, He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Here God responds yes to his people. He promises to those who are faithful to him that he will bring peace to them. The Hebrew word here is shalom, which means more than peace in the way that we think of it as the absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness. And in this context of famine, it means wholeness of the land and of the people. The land will be fruitful when it has shalom or wholeness. And when it bears fruit, the people will eat and be filled and experience the shalom, the peace of prosperity. We see this later in the psalm when God proclaims that the land will yield its harvest. But what is the condition that God gives them? He says they must not turn back to folly. They must not turn back to folly. Folly, a kind of old-fashioned word we don't use much, meaning lack of good sense, foolishness. The whole story of the Bible is the people of God not being able to stay on the straight and narrow long before turning back to folly. There is this pendulum swinging between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. So God says, yes, I will face you, Israel, but you must turn toward me as well and not turn away to the things that will destroy you. We are at this point as American Christians, too, when it is so evident that we need God's interference and help. The culture we are immersed in is a mess. We are feeling that in 2020, aren't we? What follies have we turned to and what follies will we continue to turn to? The world is full of tempting folly for God's people, and we are so apt to fall for it. I saw such a vivid modern example of this a few nights ago when Judson and I were watching a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which I recommend everyone see. It's an expose interviewing all the inventors that worked for Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and a host of other tech companies. They're all revealing how these apps are increasingly designed to rewire our brains and are made as addictive as possible so that the companies make as much money as possible. These inventors narrate that what they thought that what they were doing was harmless at first, but now are all horrified about what's happening to the world because of this technology. The computer algorithms they designed to make our devices a perfect vessel of our individualized desires and to shape our desires for profit are creating monsters. Nearly all of us are addicted and spending hours each day staring at our smartphones. And each of our devices is really, really good at knowing what we each find most tempting through data collection. These algorithms don't care if something we are shown is good for us. They only care that we click on it. Since smartphones became widely used 10 years ago, suicide rates are way up, depression and anxiety have dramatically increased, particularly among teens, and relationships are suffering. 
Addictions of every kind are made so easy. Overspending, endless scrolling, to much more toxic kinds of addictions like pornography and adultery. We are more politically polarized than we've ever been, three times more polarized than we were 20 years ago, because we only see opinions on our feeds, which our phones know we already agree with. We are becoming more and more trapped within ourselves and alienated from each other, alienated from God and alienated from his creation. The documentary makes a persuasive argument that these technologies are the reason democracy is being eroded around the world. Democracy relies on mutual trust, and that is eroding so quickly as we are fed deeply divided narratives of what truth is. It's so interesting watching this documentary as a believer because you can tell these inventors are searching for a way to narrate the human depravity they are seeing, but they don't have the language. We are giving the people exactly what they want, they say, but turns out what they want is killing them. As people of scripture, we know why this is the case, don't we? We know that spiritual powers and principalities have taken up residence in these powerful technologies precisely because they are so powerful and that the tempter is the pro at anticipating our desires. In Psalm 85, God is warning his people about folly and we need to heed this because we now have endless worlds of folly at our fingertips. But God offers us freedom for this folly and all follies. He offers us an alternative. What does he offer? Let's return to the psalm, picking up in verse 9. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. God says to his people, if you turn away from folly and you turn towards me and trust in me and fear me, glory will dwell in your land. When we are trapped by our own communal desires and addiction, God offers us salvation. This verse gives me chills. God's glory means the very magnificent presence of God himself. The experience of true glory is what these tech companies wish they could achieve but will never be able to. It's what Satan deeply desires but can never attain. They just offer us false shadows of true glory. The best my smartphone can give me is a momentary stimulation that leaves me wanting more. I personally have become super addicted to Instagram. And as I find myself spending hours and hours scrolling and scrolling, I know it's abundance that I'm searching for in the wrong place. Only God's glory is true abundance. God's glory fills up to the brim, fills us up to the brim with deep satisfaction. For the Israelites, if God's glory dwells in their land, they never need to fear a bad harvest again. God's glory is the source of all fruitfulness. If God's glory dwells with them, there will be no lack. Then in verse 10 to 13, God gives one of the most beautiful promises to his people in all of scripture. What does it look like when God's glory dwells with his people? The psalm tells us, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. What a beautiful poetic image of what intimacy with God looks like. The fall separated these things, separated God's love from our faithfulness separated God's righteousness from humanity's shalom or peace. 
When we are trapped in sin, it doesn't seem to matter how much God loves us. We still struggle to be faithful to him. And despite God's righteousness or covenant faithfulness, we struggle to live into his commandments in a way that yields wholeness for humanity and for this earth. But here the psalm gives us an image of what it will be when sin is removed. These things torn apart will embrace and kiss again. Think of how sweet it will be to hug the people we love when this pandemic is over. The sweetness of embrace after long separation. God promises that heaven will come and be united with earth and Eden will be restored. The Lord will give what is good as he has since the beginning of creation and the land will yield bountiful harvests and the people will rejoice. This is no virtual reality of escape. This is the promise of God's real, earthy, tangible reality. I love this quote from the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon about these verses. He says, this is a delicious scene, earth yielding flowers of truth and heaven shining with stars of holiness, the spheres echoing to each other or being mirrors of each other's beauties. When God looks down in grace, man sends his heart upward in obedience. How beautiful. But when will this vision come to pass, we ask? Did it come to the, immediately to the Israelites? We know from the rest of the story of the Old Testament that it did not. The famine did pass, but this vision of full reconciliation between God, humanity, and creation is one of so many in the Old Testament pointing towards a future hope, a coming kingdom, a yearned for outcome. This vision and many others became the substance of the Jewish people's hope for a Messiah, the ultimate one to deliver them from exile, as we sang in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. For whom does the psalm speak of in the final line? Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Who is the him? As Christians, we look back on these scriptures with the knowledge that it is God's son whom the Lord sends to bring heaven to earth. All that leads up to the birth of Jesus is preparing the way for him, making the way for his steps. It is Jesus who is God's glorious presence come to dwell on earth in human form. It is he who embodies the union of heaven and earth in the incarnation, who brings the good news that God's kingdom is coming to finally break down the effects of sin and evil and death that block peace on earth, that block shalom. Christ is the one human who can keep his gaze fixed on the Father. He never turns to folly. He never fears that creation won't yield its fruitfulness. And in turn, his father never turns away from Jesus because his son is his beloved in whom he is very well pleased. Jesus is God who came to us as a human so he can make way for all of us to be truly human. So he can show us and empower us to be the kind of faithful people who can be in a locked embrace with our God. A people who can't stop looking at our father in heaven. Growing up, one of our staple Christmas albums was Amy Grant's 1983 masterpiece that to this day is the first one that I play at the beginning of Advent, much to Judson's chagrin. As an adult, I can recognize that the immense amount of 80s synthesizer might be a tad cheesy, but never has synthesizer been made so sacred to a child's heart. That album was my first introduction to the holiness of the Christ child. She has one song on there called Emmanuel, 
that proclaims Isaiah 9's prophecy about Jesus, that a son will be born to us that will be called Wonderful Counselor, Lord of life, Lord of all. He is the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Holy One, Emmanuel. For Jesus is indeed all of those things for us. He is the holy presence of God in our lives, God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. Fulfilling Psalm 85, he is the one who counsels us into faithfulness, the mighty God who brings righteousness, the ultimate bringer of peace, shalom. He is the love and faithfulness embracing, righteousness and peace kissing. He is our hope in dark times and our sustenance in hungry times. And he promises to return to us and bring new creation to this earth, bringing eternal peace and our resurrection into a land that will bear more fruitfully than we can ever imagine. Many of us at Redeemer got a taste of this glory at the farmer's market that Redeemer hosted this fall for 12 weeks, a free farmer's market. Never have I seen so much evidence of Jesus's presence. Every week we harvested what our land gave that week, and we ordered produce, meat, and eggs from other small, local, small-scale farmers who were trying to be faithful to God in, a, in the way that they farm their land and they raise their animals. And every week we had exactly the amount of food needed for however many guests showed up that week. It was astonishing, like Jesus feeding the 5,000 every week. When we were low on our budget for one week, God would provide us a giant donation of bananas or something unexpected. Our prayer team was there faithfully, praying for dozens of people each week, and people claimed amazing healings. You should ask Jim Godfrey to tell you some of the stories. And we had an abundance of volunteers every week. So many of our teenagers came out to serve. But perhaps the greatest sign of his presence was the presence of joy. In this dark and depressing year, the market was this light-filled morning of contagious happiness. I don't know exactly how to describe it. The tables were filled with this beautiful abundance of God's creation, and that just seemed to make both us and our guests happy. In the midst of a strained election season, partisan divides were set aside as we came to work side by side. I think we were all sensing a taste of the abundance of new creation that will be offered at no cost to any of us. We were experiencing as a church that when we are faithful and live into Jesus' kingdom of caring for others with love, he rewards us with his presence. I have never been so proud of Redeemer, and particularly our youth. Y'all were the body of Christ this fall, and I'm so grateful for each of you. Glory dwelt in our parking lot for 12 weeks, not because we manufactured it, but because we were obedient. Heaven met earth. Faithfulness sprang forth from the earth, and righteousness looked down from heaven. And so as we sit in expectant waiting for Jesus to come into our lives, I encourage you to pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, our church will receive more and more opportunities to live into God's light in this dark winter. May the light of God crowd out all darkness over the next few months. May we be so focused on his promises that the bleak realities that surround us will seem insignificant in comparison. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Amen.